Well, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9 this morning, Mark chapter 9. And are you familiar with the expression, seeing the world through rose-colored glasses? Perhaps you know someone like this. This refers to people who are seemingly detached from reality and view life as if everything is perfect. It's not that they're just optimists in the midst of a bad world. They genuinely just are oblivious to reality. Everything is rosy to them. For instance, maybe you have a friend who thinks the world is such a peaceful place. After all, there hasn't been a war since a major war for 70 years, World War II. Of course, that's not true. Warfare has been seemingly constant every year somewhere around the globe. It's like some people just want to believe the world is a peaceful place. Kids often view the world as if it's through rosy lenses, simply because they don't know better. If they're well-fed, everyone's well-fed. If they have a roof over their head, everyone has a roof over their head. If they've got toys, everyone has toys. They've yet to see how truly poverty-stricken the world really is. Of course, no one seems to view the world through rose-colored lenses as much as people in love. Take a young couple who are infatuated with one another, and you have a potential recipe for disaster. They're so shaded by love that they only see the good things in the, in the other person. And the rest of the world could be yelling at them, telling them that the other person is no good, but it's useless. They won't hear you. They can't see until they take those glasses off. But no one is so influenced by the glasses they wear as religious people. This can be an extremely good thing or an extremely bad thing. And we're part of this group. We have to admit, we view the world through the lenses of the Bible. It's part of our faith. If you have a problem with that, you've got to take it up with the Bible. But other people do the same with whatever religion they hold to. And it's so difficult to change such people's minds. They grew, they grew up believing what they do. That's all they've ever known. And they're, they're just not going to change. And you have to realize that in Christ's day, the Jews were just like that. They had these lenses on. They weren't under the impression that life was all peachy, but their religious beliefs clouded their minds and prevented them from seeing the truth. They had long ago gotten rid of biblical Old Testament Judaism, and they had replaced it with this man-made system of rules and traditions. And it was this system that just about every Jew subscribed to. And it so shaded and biased their vision that when their own Messiah actually came for them, they, they missed him and they rejected him. And you ever, you ever wonder about that or think about that? How could they miss their own Messiah? And Jews today still use the excuse that if Jesus really was the Messiah, then all those first century Jews, they wouldn't have missed him. They would have recognized him. And ironically, they fall into the same trap. Everyone's wearing glasses. We all have these lenses on. We all view and interpret the world through our set of beliefs. But the pitfall for those Jews was that they abandoned God's system of beliefs and they adopted their own man-made system of beliefs and it led them away from the truth. And so, yes, they really did miss their own Messiah when he came for them. Remarkably, even Christ's own 12 disciples struggled with this. They've come to see him and believe that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God. But they're still hanging on to their rose-colored lenses. and So even their belief in Jesus is distorted. They still have a really hard time wrapping their mind around his mission. He's the Messiah, but what, what did you really come here to do? And we find this exemplified in the passage we have this morning in Mark chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. This is a companion passage to last week's passage covering the transfiguration. And now we learn just how the disciples were affected by what they saw. 
And you think that after all this, they they finally have it all figured out, after the transfiguration. But sadly, as we were going to witness their response, it just makes you want to put your face in your palm, because after all this, they still don't get it. They're still clueless. If you weren't here last week, the beginning of Mark chapter 9 opens up with this event called the Transfiguration. And apart from his resurrection and his crucifixion, the Transfiguration was the most significant and revealing event in the life of Christ. It was a time when he momentarily unveiled his true glory. You might remember he took the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, up this high mountain. And as verse 2 of chapter 9 says, he was transfigured before them. And what does that mean? But he was changed. And for one, his his clothes started to glow. He he started glowing like a light bulb. Matthew said his face starts shining like the sun. He's just giving off this radiant, penetrating, blinding white light. This was him unveiling his glory, a visual manifestation of his glory. And then God shows up. God the Father has no form, but the glory cloud descended, and they heard his voice. Captured in verse 7, God said, This is my beloved Son, Listen to him. You just put this all together, and it's such an amazing testimony as to the true identity of Jesus. They had believed that he was the Christ and the Son of God. But this this transfiguration was like over-the-top proof that he really is the Messiah and the Son of God. You, You know Jesus, he spoke like God, he acted like God, he worked wonders like God, but he didn't look like God. He looked like a man. And that was on purpose, part of the incarnation. He had to be made like men. But here his divine glory was unveiled, and they saw him 100% for who he truly was. And it was a stunning proof of his identity. But the transfiguration was also proof of his mission. Because on the mountain, you also remember, he had two special visitors. Remember? Moses and Elijah. These guys have been dead for roughly 1,000 years. But here they are, they're back from heaven, They're conversing with Jesus. And what are they talking about? They're talking about the cross, the coming crucifixion, the death of Jesus. And this is such a huge point that we explored last week. Right before this all happened, Jesus let the cat out of the bag that, yeah, he is the Messiah, but he's not going to meet their expectations. He's not the Messiah they may have been expecting. They were expecting a political liberator. Messiah to come with sword in hand to deliver Israel. But that's not going to happen. He came first to redeem Israel, not from Rome, but from sin. And to do that, he has to suffer and die. This revelation sent the disciples into a tailspin. It went totally against everything their rose-colored glasses led them to believe. That's not how they viewed the world. How can the Messiah save Israel if he's dead? This... This can't be God's will. The Messiah is destined for glory, not suffering and death. Peter even tried to rebuke Jesus for talking like this. This this was literally nonsense. It just makes no sense, they thought. But this was God's will. The Messiah had to die. It was necessary to make a payment for sin. And this was God's plan. It wasn't a new plan. This was the Old Testament plan. And you want proof of that? Well, here's Moses. Here's Elijah. Every Jew would have understood and recognized these two as representing the Old Testament law and prophets. That this is God's word. Just that there it is in, in form. And they're conversing, they're agreeing with Jesus about his path to the cross. That he must, he must go. 
he must die. This is God's long-standing plan. And this, this right here should have been all the confirmation the disciples needed that Jesus had to suffer and die. But it wasn't. Even after all this, all they witnessed, all they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's still there's not registering in their minds Jesus has to die. They, they still just can't accept that. The transfigura- transfiguration ends. Jesus goes back to his veiled self. Elijah and Moses are gone. The glory cloud of God is gone. The disciples are left to reflect on what they had seen as they start heading down the mountain. But instead of finally realizing it, the Messiah has to suffer and die, that's part of the plan, instead of realizing that, they become seemingly more resolved than ever that the Messiah can't suffer and die because they just saw his glory. And they just they can't reconcile the two, suffering and glory. It, it, they can never go together. So we find that it appears that a veil still remains over their eyes and their rose-colored glasses are still on. Coming down the mountain, the disciples still have more questions than answers. But this is good for us. Because from their questions, we find answers. And from their struggles, we find the truth. We are instructed. And much is to be learned from this afterglow of the transfiguration, from Jesus, from the disciples. We want to do that now. So with that in mind, join me as we read through this passage that we'll be taking a look at. Mark chapter 9. We're picking up from last time, so we're picking up in verse 9. Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. But yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. This is a very instructive passage, but at the same time, for many Christians, it's very enigmatic. Meaning it's meant to reveal a lot about Jesus, but many Christians find themselves confused. What's all this talk about Elijah and resurrection? I'm like, what's what's he talking about? What does he mean? And there is so much to see here, and we want to make sure it's clear. It's our goal every week to make sure the word is always clear. So we're going to go through this as trying to make it make sure it's clear in your mind what's happening here, this interchange between Christ and his disciples. There's a lot to learn about his plan, so let's let's go through this again. And I'll give you a little outline to follow along. Start with this. Number one, a demand of silence. Number one, a demand of silence. And return to verse 9. It says, As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Now just for a second, stop. Put yourself in the shoes of these three disciples, Peter, James, and John. They just had this breathtaking experience. They had heard the voice of God. They had seen Jesus transfigured and glorified. And now they're walking down the mountain. It's all done. They're basking in the afterglow of this event. 
And all these thoughts are running through their mind. There's thoughts of glory. Jesus just before promised that they would see the Son of Man coming in glory, and they just saw it. There's thoughts of power and kingdom. Jesus said they would see the kingdom coming in power, and they, they just saw it. They saw a preview of that. They even saw Moses and Elijah. So with each step down the mountain, it's like they're getting more and more excited and pumped up because everything they were hoping for, the kingdom, the power, the glory, I mean, they, they just saw it. That means it's coming. It's got to be close. And so when they get down that mountain, what's the first thing they want to do? They want to go tell people. They want to go share and spread. Like, look what we just saw. It's, it's coming. It's about to happen. And that's why it's so sudden, Jesus throws a, a wet blanket on their flame and he demands they don't tell anyone. He demands silence. You guys don't say a word to anyone about what you just saw. And it's a curveball. Why would he do that? Why would he tell them not to tell about his coming glory, about the, the, what they saw, the kingdom and power and all that? Why the silence? It's not the first time. It's not the first time we've seen Jesus order them to keep quiet about him and his works. Maybe remember back in Mark chapter 5, after Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, he said, hey, don't tell anyone. In Mark chapter 7, after he healed the man born blind and mute, he told them, and don't tell anyone. And even as recent as Mark chapter 8, right after Peter confesses, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, what does Jesus say? Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone I'm the Messiah. It's Mark chapter 8, verse 30. It's like, wait, wait a second. Isn't that the whole point? Why do you not want people to know you're the Messiah? Isn't that like what we're supposed to tell everyone? So why this, this silence? And the answer we've seen many, many times is that Jesus doesn't want them to spread an incomplete message, especially while they're still wearing those shiny rose-colored glasses. They may have finally come to identify him as the Messiah, but they're still expecting a political liberator, not a suffering servant. But without the cross, without the resurrection, there's no good news. What are they going to tell? There's, there's no good news. Without the cross, Jesus, he's just a healer. He's just a miracle worker. There's no ultimate good news in that. Now, the good news is found in the resurrection. And Jesus knows it won't be until after his resurrection that they will better be able to appreciate his mission for what it really is. So for now, he says, it's best that they just keep silent about him lest they fan the flames of these Jewish hopes for a materialistic kingdom and, and this conquering Messiah. Just imagine this. Imagine you're, you're biking along this trail by the beach, by the coast. You're trying to get to this lighthouse. It's way out in the distance, a couple miles away, but you can see it. You're getting there. And, but your path splits. You get a fork in the road, and now you have two paths. And you can see where they go a little bit, but you can't actually tell which one will take you to the lighthouse. And the road on the left looks pretty nice. It's wide, it's flat, it's paved. Looks like a nice trail along the, in the great coastal views. And pretty easy. It looks like a nice road. And the path on the right, though, it's this narrow, bumpy dirt road. It's all overgrown by brush. You know you're going to get scraped if you go over there. Maybe a flat tire. It's definitely the road less traveled. Now, everything in you says, well, just, just take the left road. I mean, it's the easy road. But you really want to get to that lighthouse. So you just you stop really quick and you hike up this hill right behind you.
to get a better vantage point, a better view of the, the landscape. And from the top, it all becomes clear. That left road, it looks pretty nice, but it doesn't go to the lighthouse. In fact, part of that road is washed out right around a blind corner. And if you had gone there, you would have plunged off the cliff. Instead, the right road, it's, it's a harder road, but it, it takes you to the lighthouse. You might get a little scratched and bumped. It's a bumpy ride, but it's going to take you where you want to go. And see, right now the disciples, they're at a crossroads, and they all want to go left. The easy road, just like easy glory, just go instant glory, let's go left. But Jesus knows it won't be until they can view the situation from the vantage point of the cross and the resurrection that the right way will become clear. It won't be until after the resurrection that they will see that the road marked with suffering is in fact the way to go. That's the way to glory. So for now, they, they can't see that. They're at a blind intersection. And he just says, just, just stay quiet. Just wait in silence until the resurrection. The glory that they witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration, they cannot properly understand that until they witness him suffer and die on another mountain. Then, at that point, then they, they, they should tell everyone. At that point, they are compelled not to silence, but to preach, to, to tell the world about who Jesus is. Tell them the Messiah came, the Messiah suffered, the Messiah died, but the Messiah rose again and he did so for your sins. That's good news worth waiting for. The disciples, they listen to Jesus as they go down the mountain. They're like, okay, okay, we're not going to tell anyone. They, they don't tell anyone. But that doesn't stop them from discussing among themselves that's what they do next. It brings us to number two. A discussion of resurrection. A discussion of resurrection. A demand of silence. Secondly, a discussion of resurrection. Verse 10. <clears throat> they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. Remember, right before this, Jesus told them, don't speak about what you saw until the Son of Man, what? Rose from the dead. So that little statement piqued their interest. And they just started talking about it. Well, what does that mean? They weren't asking Jesus. They're probably too scared at the moment to ask Jesus, but they're talking among themselves. And this whole discussion, the fact that they're even talking about this, just goes to show you that they're still clueless. They still don't get it. What are they really talking about? Are they discussing the concept of resurrection? No. They, they know what resurrection is. They know if someone's dead, they come back to life. In fact, these three, Peter, James, and John, were the only ones to witness Jesus raise Lazar, uh, Jairus' daughter from the dead. So they know what resurrection is. Are they discussing the reality of future resurrection at the end of days? No, they already believe in this too. All the Jews, except the Sadducees, that little sect, they all believe that there will be a final resurrection at the end of days. Based off of Daniel 12.2, for instance, which reads, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So the disciples, like almost all the Jews, they believed that there's going to be a resurrection. At the end of days, everyone's going to rise, judgment, glory, and so on. So, so they, they already know this. So what are they wondering? What are they so confused about? 
Mansers, they're confused about resurrection as it applies to Jesus. He's using this word, son of man. And that term we learned before, it's taken straight out of Daniel chapter 7. It's a blatant messianic title. And that's confusing to them because in their minds with their lenses on, the concept of son of man and rising from the dead, they never belong in the same sentence. Because for the son of man to rise from the dead, that means he first died. That can't be. Once again, their rose-colored lenses are kicking in, and they just they can't get over what they've known, what they grew up believing. The Messiah just can't die. And don't under- underestimate the power of that. Don't underestimate the power of someone's preconceived notions. Just imagine your parents raised you in the wilderness of Alaska. All by yourself, your family lived on a little homestead and just living off the land. Your parents, they raised you, they educated you all by themselves, just total isolation. But what if also your parents had this form of colorblindness where to them, red and blue were switched. So everything was backwards, red and blue. And as they teach you, they're going to pass this along. So for instance, stop signs and fire trucks and strawberries are all blue. What we call red, they just call blue. And the sky and the ocean, they call that red. And as you grow up, you're not colorblind, but that's your definition of red and blue, just because that's how you were raised. Well, as you grow up, you decide to head to a big city, and you're shocked to find that everyone is crazy because they think stop signs are red and the sky is blue. Like, what are they talking about? They have it all backwards. But you find out everyone's like this, and they're calling you crazy. And you start thinking, am I crazy? Can you just imagine how frustrating that would be? And for a lot of people, they may not even accept it. They may just think everyone else is crazy. They would have a hard time believing this new reality. Red is red. Blue is blue. Because that's how they were raised. That's all they've ever known. It's just in them. And when they're confronted with a new definition of reality, at the very least, it's hard to accept. Right? And that's what's going on with the disciples. The disciples, and really all the Jews, they've been raised with this deep-seated belief in the Messiah. Lots of scribal teaching, lots of tradition, just part of the culture, how you're raised. Everyone believes it, that the Messiah, he's coming, but he's coming for glory and power and dominion. Take out the Romans, put us on top. I mean, it's just, that's just the belief that they were born with. But Jesus comes and he says, that's not really how it is. And he, he changes reality for them. He's redefining their concept of the Messiah. He says, actually, that will happen later, but first, the Messiah must suffer and be rejected and die. He is redefining the reality of the Messiah, and at the very least, it's hard to accept. We can appreciate that more now. I think it's just, it's hard for them to accept this. It goes against all they've ever known. Hopefully, that gives you just a better understanding of what the disciples are going through why they're struggling, why they're discussing the resurrection. It's still just too hard for them to think of a dead Messiah who needs resurrection. For us, we always criticize the disciples for missing the obvious. Like, come on, guys, it's so obvious. But for them, not so obvious. That's why they discuss, and that's why they question. And that brings us to number three, a question of precedence. Now they're, now they're turning their discussion into a question, a question of precedence. 
It's found in verse 11. Verse 11 says, They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Here, they're just confused. And they're just plain confused. And you might be too. A lot of Christians, when they read this, are like, what, why, what does that mean? Why are they asking that? They were just talking about resurrection. You'd expect them to ask a question about resurrection. So what's up with all this? Where's Elijah coming from? Why are they asking about Elijah coming first? Well, let's go off of their question. It's based on the, the teaching of the scribes. They were the supposed you know, religious experts, the experts of the law, the guardians of the law. And they all taught that Elijah, who is the greatest Old Testament prophet, they said he's coming back. And he's going to come back before the Messiah. He's going to get everything ready, and then the Messiah will come. So every Jew believed Elijah will return. And actually, it's a biblical belief. They actually had this one right. read this verse, I think, for the past couple of sermons, but one more time won't hurt. The Old Testament ends, the final two verses of the Old Testament, God tells them this. He promises and predicts this. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. God says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with the curse. That's how the Old Testament ends. That's it. But it's a promise of Elijah coming before the end, restoring the people to the Lord. And so appropriately, the Jews believe this. That's good. So then what's the disciples' problem? What's their question here? Why are they confused? Well, there's one little key detail you need to know to, to kind of put this all together and wrap this up. The Jews, they all expected that Elijah would come and the Messiah would come and there would be a resurrection all at the end of days. All of these concepts, it's at the very, very end. I'm talking end of history. That's it. That's it. History is over. The new kingdom begins and it's just, it's over. It all happens at once. Their belief is that Elijah comes back. He restores the people, almost like they're soldiers waiting for the Messiah. Then the Messiah comes like a conquering king, takes out the nations. Then there's a final resurrection. Then there's a final judgment, and that's it. Then there's the eternal kingdom, which is more akin to what we would call the new heavens, the new earth. This all happens at once. It all happens at the end of the age. The Jews had no concept of an intervening age, which we call the church age. That's where the Messiah has come, but the kingdom has not come. That doesn't make any sense to them. They had no concept of two comings of the Messiah. Now, the Old Testament is actually pretty clear. There are two comings of the Messiah. When you piece it together, it makes perfect sense. However, they didn't view all the prophecies from the right perspective. It's like aiming a rifle. You look down the barrel and you line up the front sight with the rear sight. That's how it works, right? And so as your, your eye is lined up with those two sights, those two sights look like they're right on top of each other. They look like they're one and the same. It looks like there's no distance between the two sights. But you turn that gun sideways, and it's pretty obvious, there's quite a distance between the front and the rear sight. And that's like Old Testament prophecy. From their perspective, they're just looking at it from that one dimension. And all of the promises of the Messiah's coming, they line up. And so they figure, well, there's just, there's just one coming. It's one and the same. 
But viewed from another angle, which is what Jesus taught them, they quickly see there are two comings, and there's a distance in between them. There's some time in between these two comings. At the first, the Messiah comes for humiliation and suffering and death. But at the second, that's when he comes for exaltation and power and glory. The disciples, though, they haven't figured this out yet. They're still looking at that one-dimensional picture of the Messiah. And so that's, that's their problem. That's why they're confused. Because they're thinking, okay, here's Jesus, and he's the Messiah. They believe that. And Jesus, he's talking about resurrection, which in their mind is the end of days. So we've got the Messiah here, end of days. Resurrection coming, end of days. We just previewed the kingdom. This is the end of days. So... End of days is here. It's coming. But wait, there's one problem with that. If all that's true, where's Elijah? Where'd Elijah go? What happened to Elijah? Wasn't he supposed to come before all this happened? That's their problem. They're looking out for the person they thought was coming, but he hasn't been there. And so they're asking, is that teaching wrong? Like, Are the scribes wrong when they say Elijah must come first? Because it seems like he hasn't, but all this other stuff is fallen into place. And to make matters even more confusing, they just saw Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? And they're like, well, that guy definitely hasn't been running around Israel preparing the people. So what's going on? Where is Elijah? Is he supposed to come or not? And if so, why are people still rejecting you? Where has he been? Who is he? They're just confused. You see the confusion? The good news is that The disciples really do believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That's good. And they're willing to submit to his teaching over the scribes. That's good. But they're still confused, so Jesus corrects them, and he redirects them with a prophecy of his own. That brings us to number four, a prophecy of suffering. Number four, a prophecy of suffering. Verse 12, And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? This doesn't happen often, but Jesus actually agrees with the scribes because their belief came from Scripture. Hey, you guys are right. Elijah does have to come first. That's true. The disciples were very concerned that this prophecy about Elijah was to be fulfilled. And that's a good thing. He's like, you know, it's right on. It's a good concern. The prophecy must be fulfilled. But one of the problems they were having is that if Elijah does come first, then why would the Son of Man still be rejected and suffer and die? It's an understandable concern, but they're failing to take into consideration all of God's Word, the whole counsel of God's Word. There are these other prophecies that they need to consider They're so concerned that God's word concerning Elijah be fulfilled, but what about God's word concerning the Son of Man? So Jesus jogs their memory. Basically says to them, hey, so what about how it's written that the Son of Man will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? What about all those prophecies? Don't you think those should be fulfilled too? And there are many. You can learn about the suffering of the Messiah in Isaiah 53 and the anguish of the Messiah in Psalm 22, and the Messiah being pierced through in Zechariah 12. Jesus is simply trying to 
correct their understanding of God's word. They really shouldn't be so surprised when he tells them that the Son of Man must suffer. They're wondering how Jesus could be the Messiah if Elijah doesn't come first. And he's like, that's, that's true, that's legitimate. He can't be. Messiah or Elijah has to come first. And he's, he says later, he does. But then he responds back, how can he be the Messiah if he doesn't suffer? Because that's actually what the word says. And those prophecies also have to be fulfilled. And it just goes to show you once again, Jesus, he fits into God's plan. He's not changing the plan. This isn't against the plan. This is God's Old Testament plan. His suffering and death are God's will. Of course, so when the disciples hear this, they're still going to be hung up on Elijah. They're going to say, okay, wait, so you're saying Elijah does come first and restore all things. So that's true. Okay, well then where was he? You're saying Elijah must come first before the Messiah. You're the Messiah. Where was Elijah? We didn't see him. Did we miss him? Who was he? And if he came, how come everyone is still rejecting you? Why would you still have to suffer and die if Elijah comes and restores the people? So they're still wondering, you know, what gives? Where is he? Who is he? And Jesus must anticipate their remaining confusion. And so he finishes off by explaining and revealing them to them who Elijah was. We see lastly, number five, a revelation of fulfillment. A revelation of fulfillment in the end, verse 13. He continues and he says, But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Now this last little tidbit I'm sure was shocking to them because he's like, hey, Elijah, he has to come, and you know what? He already came. He already came. And they're thinking, wait, did, did we miss him? Like, where'd he go? And the answer is they didn't miss him, but they didn't identify him. They didn't recognize him when he came. And you can probably piece together who Jesus is talking about if you know your Bible well. The disciples themselves, they put it together. Surprisingly, they, they figured it out. The parallel passage in Matthew chapter 17, verse 13, it tells us, after Jesus said this, then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Yes, John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Elijah's coming. Obviously not literally. This wasn't a reincarnation or a literal second coming, but it was a fulfillment of the prophecy, says Jesus. Remember, what did the angel announce to the parents of John before he was born? The angel came and said to them, you're going to have a son. You're going to name him John. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, this is in Luke chapter 1, verse 16, it says, And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. That's a quote from Malachi. And the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a, pe- a people prepared for the Lord. And there it is. Angel said, here he comes. This is the forerunner in the spirit and power of Elijah. And that that was John. That's what he did. Before Jesus came on the scene, John had a huge ministry. He was baptizing people in the Jordan, preaching repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
He had a ministry of alignment. He was getting people back on track with God so that when the Messiah did come, they would run right into him. Thousands of Jews listened to him and were baptized by him. And many of those Jews would later believe in Jesus. Peter and Andrew were first disciples of John the Baptist before they came to Jesus. So at this point, the disciples, they put it together. Like, okay, we're talking about John. It all makes sense now. John was Elijah and he came before you. And he did did that work of restoration. Okay, I guess that makes sense. So Elijah must come first. You're Messiah. John's Elijah. And it all works. You had your forerunner. We just didn't recognize him, but there he was. So problem solved, right? But there's still one glaring, huge problem with John playing the role of Elijah. Do you know what that is? John was popular early on, but what happened to John? How did his life end? John was rejected, he suffered, and then he was killed. Now, they're probably thinking, that. wait a second, that, that's not right. I mean, for Elijah, the coming Elijah, surely he's not going to suffer and die too. Understand, this revelation was a new shocker. This is a brand new shock to them. Because not only did every Jew think it was impossible for the Messiah to suffer and die when he came, but they also thought it was equally impossible for Elijah to suffer and die when he came. And by associating John with Elijah, Jesus is scandalizing the disciples all over again. But it's very fitting. It's very fitting that John suffered because as the fulfillment of Elijah, he really did prefigure and go before Jesus in many ways. John went before Jesus in ministry and John went before Jesus in suffering and death. And that's on purpose. And the big point which hopefully you gather is what they did to John, they're going to do to Jesus. The way they treated the forerunner, how do you think they're going to treat the Messiah? Expect rejection, suffering, and death. It should not be a surprise. It happened to John. And don't you find it interesting that Jesus, he doesn't highlight the ministry of John, he highlights the death of John. John was loved by the people but rejected by all of the leaders. The religious leaders hated him because he wasn't part of their system. The secular leaders hated him because he represented true righteousness. So no tears were shed by the leaders of Israel when Herod had John beheaded. He says they did to him whatever they wished. And Jesus also points out that John's treatment was written long ago. And here Jesus references the almost exact parallel of the first Elijah's life and the second Elijah's life. Do you remember the ministry of the original Elijah? What happened to him? The entire nation was apostate. They essentially rejected him. And then at the instigation of a scorned wife, Jezebel, the weak king Ahab sought to kill him. He wanted to take his head. But he escaped. They didn't. They failed. But likewise, the second Elijah, John the Baptist, he similarly met with an apostate nation who rejected him and also at the instigation of a scorned wife, Herodias, the weak king, Herod, sought to kill him. Only this time, they succeeded in removing his head. 
So just to put this together as the disciples, I'm sure, are doing, John's Elijah, he, he didn't escape. He didn't get taken to heaven like the first Elijah. He died. He was killed. And if that's how they treated the forerunner, what are they going to do to the Messiah? And that's the point. As the religious leaders rejected John and happily handed him over to the Romans to be killed, they're going to do the exact same thing to Jesus. And Jesus himself connects all the dots in the parallel, Matthew 17, verse 12. He says, So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. The message to the boys, Peter, James, and John, I mean, they're, they're right on the cusp of this thing. They're, they're so close to finally getting it all. They're wondering about Elijah, and that's good. You're right to wonder about Elijah. He's part of the plan. But you need to realize he's come. He already came. He was John. He was the forerunner. But they rejected him. They killed him. And they just need to just get that one last step. The same thing must happen to Jesus. The suffering of John doesn't disqualify him from playing the role of Elijah. And the suffering of Jesus doesn't disqualify him from playing the role of the Messiah. It's time for them to rethink the true path to the kingdom. It's not that easy road, instant glory. That's not the right way. The true path is the way of John, the way of Jesus. Suffering for the crown. That being said, it should be noted the kingdom is coming. Jesus will come back. There will be a second coming of the Messiah. And as a quick side note, there will be another coming of Elijah too. That Malachi 4 prophecy, most would agree, it's not completely fulfilled. And so I think it's no coincidence that right before the second coming of Jesus, at the real end of days, Right before that, two witnesses show up in Israel, as described in Revelation chapter 11. And they don't have any names, but they bear an amazing, striking resemblance to Moses and Elijah. It's a discussion for another day, but I think it's safe to expect that a forerunner will return one more time. Another Elijah will come right before Jesus comes back, and this time, though, in glory. But with that, this passage ends. We have to admit, this is a short little passage in Mark. It's probably one that if you read, you probably skip right over it. You don't give it much thought. You probably never thought about this. A lot of people, it's a little challenging. They're confused. What's all this Elijah talk? It's also not the most directly practical passage. You don't go here for marriage advice or tips on finances, obviously, right? But I don't want you to underestimate or undervalue the importance of this little interchange between Jesus and and his disciples. Because look, we all have moments when we wonder, or for some people, they doubt. Is this the right way? Am I on the right way? Jesus calls us to follow him down the road of suffering, to carry a cross, to deny self. He says what happens to him, what happened to John, that's, that's for us too. That, that's hard. That's a painful path. Is this really the right way? Is this the right thing? Or are we just... Wasting our lives for nothing. And see, when you have those moments of wonder or moments of weakness, that's when you need that deep-seated conviction that this is the right way. And where does that conviction come from? It comes from the Word. It comes from passages like this. We hear from Jesus and the mistakes of the disciples. This is the way. So be encouraged and be reminded 
This, this is the way. This is the plan. It was the way for John the Baptist. It was the way for Jesus. It became the way for the disciples. And it's the way for you too. Whatever trials you face in life, especially those on behalf of Jesus, as you endure them, remember, that's not a sign that you have deviated from God's path. That's a sign that you are on God's path because those sufferings are promised. And as an even greater encouragement, just remember that all of this has been written. It's all been written. Several times, Jesus diffuses the doubts and the fears of the disciples by what? By simply telling them of Scripture. He says, hey guys, you know, don't worry. You know, this has all been written. It's all been written. And you know it's going to go according to plan. God, God's will, His plan, cannot be thwarted. So they just need to trust and follow, and so do you. All you have to do is be encouraged by Scripture because it's all been written. First coming of the Messiah was written. His suffering was written. But his second coming is written. His coming glory, it's written. And the same goes for you. You may worry so much about the sufferings you face on behalf of Christ. But those have been written. Those have also been written. Your entire life has been written. In God's book, all the days of your life have already been numbered. End of your story has been written. It's all been written. Now, of course, the hard part is we, we can't read that book. We don't have access to that book. But if you've been made right with God by turning from your sin, turning toward Christ as the Messiah by faith, then all you need to know is that your book ends with a happy ending. It will end well for you if you're in Christ, despite all the troubles you have in life. There's a glorious ending for you as well. And so while it may be written for you to suffer, that's, that's part of your book. You will suffer for the Lord if you know him. But just remember also, it's written for you to be saved. Your forgiveness is written. Your eternal life is written. Your place in heaven is written. So take courage. The way of discipleship can be hard. And sometimes you might wonder, am I on the right track? But be reminded, be encouraged. This is the right path. Keep running the race like John did, like Jesus did, like the disciples did, a father lead. At the end, it's written for us to share in his glory as well. Let's pray. Our glorious Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your word. It's precious to us and it contains the words of life. And in it is written, indeed, those words of life where we can know our great problem before you. We're convicted even more so of our own sin but yet we can learn about the solution. And it was written for the Messiah to come first, to suffer many things, to be rejected, and then to die on the cross. And it did so, Lord, for our sin, to forgive us our debt before you. And now it's also written that we can be forgiven and saved if we turn from our sin, follow you in faith, follow the Lord Jesus Christ, cry out to him, you will make us alive and born again. It's written for those who have done this, that glory awaits, though we are far from perfect, yet because of what Christ did, taking our sin, giving us his righteousness, we can be made totally right before you and enjoy glory, the glories of heaven just by grace. There's nothing we deserve, but it's written for us to enjoy if we know him. So we thank you for this, Lord. May your word always encourage us. We thank you for your plan, 
It's all part of your plan written before the foundations of the world. And we're part of that too. May we be a good part of that plan, not a bad part of that plan. And may we always walk according to your will. It's found in the word. Encourage us as we leave that this is the right way to go. Following you, the marked with suffering leads to glory. May ultimately we always follow the Lord in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.